4: actually the situation is infinitely more complicated as ever than the perception you might have about it so it's not scotland versus england it's not catholics versus protestants um you know that um, charles is not a scottish nationalist um, hero by any stretch of the imagination
5: that was jacqueline riding discussing the jacobite rebellion
6: says the people of this country, of the West, are, are all tall and honest. And then it goes on to say, in, in fact, in that, they're quite like us. Um, these are decent
5: people. And that was Michael Scott talking to us about connections in the ancient world.
0: You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. we the UK's best-selling history magazine available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe, or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store.
5: Hello, and welcome to our fourth podcast of July 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Our first interview this week is with Dr Jacqueline Riding of Birkbeck. She's the author of Jacobites, A New History of the 45 Rebellion, which, as the title suggests, describes Bonnie Prince Charlie's attempts to win back the throne for his family from the Hanoverian dynasty. Our book's editor, Matt Elton, spoke to Jacqueline recently and began by asking her about what point in the Jacobite story her book begins.
4: Well, I think you can't really do the 45 without starting reasonably early. I mean, the first chapter obviously has to deal with the back story of why did the Jacobites exist at all? Who are the Jacobites? So you have to start really with uh, the glorious revolution, as it's described. Um, so there's sort of 1688 onwards. Um, and, and I tried to get that over and done with as fast as possible because if anyone knows anything about the story, they want to get into the action. They want to get into the – into they want to meet Charles and they want to – um, you know get going on on this extraordinary story so so yes yeah, so you have to start in the well you can start as early as you like in the 17th century but you know you have to do the the latter part of the um and the reign of um James the second and seventh um, and then you rattle through that and then you can really get going on the on um on the 45 itself which really starts as a campaign starting in 1743. So I also wanted to start the story. Once you've got the back story um, described, I wanted to focus and start on Rome itself and uh, the the exiled Jacobite court. Um, so the story would fast forward from from the background to these individuals in some way, trying to describe um, James Francis Edward Stuart, who's the the old pretender, um, the son of. Um, um, James the Second and Seventh, and so on. So you want to get a sense of their character, what it's like being in an exile court, um, how difficult it must be to to, as I call it, uh, maintain um, sort of battle readiness, as it were, for the potential you know, within a number of days, weeks or so, to actually form the core of a court back in, in London, in, in Britain, should a restoration attempt be successful. So I wanted to, so initially I rattled through the, 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 the past, the history, um, to the 45 and then really sort of settle in and, and, and get going around 17, 1740 onwards and really get going in 1743. So by
7: the time we get to 1745, who are the key players in this story?
4: Well, uh, obviously a key player, and if you, were, obviously if you were doing a film on this, one of the leads would be Charles Edward Stuart himself. So he is obviously the son of James Francis Edward, the old pretender. Um, he has been sent in 1743 to 4, at the turn of that, that, those years, with the blessing of his father to Paris um, in order to head up a, um, an invasion attempt um, which is being supported, effectively, an evasion attempt by the French. So the initial part of what we could call the 45 actually is with his father's blessing, and it's an official attempt by the Stuart court with um, the old pretender um, very much um, for it. And his son is sent as, as the representative of the Stuarts to, to Paris to head it up, as I say. That then fails Charles then ends up kicking his heels in Paris um, for over a year, so the 45 includes this amazing period of a year where he's trying to get support, get the French back on side to attempt another invasion of Great Britain, whilst there's fighting in Flanders, as elsewhere in in Europe. Um, So the two leads, the key leads from the Stuart point of view are the, um, is James Francis Edward Stuart, who's the old pretender back in Rome, um, and his son, Charles Edward Stuart, in Paris. You've also obviously got Louis XV of France, whose support is crucial to any attempt or indeed success successful um, Stuart restoration attempt. So they're the three key players right at the, the beginning of the story, when, when Charles is actually in Paris. And then, of course, he, through frustration um he decides to because there's no obvious uh, major invasion uh, occurring um through the french through the french um point of view from the french point of view he decides that he's just that, that you know he's been pushed too far and that he really has to do it himself that in fact he's going to force france to do what he wants them to do which is a major invasion of britain probably the southeast and scotland at the same time tens of thousands of um, soldiers, um, transport ships, um, you know, bullets, <laughs> um, you know, the whole, you know, the whole thing. He thinks if he can do a sort of low key attempt on Scotland. Hit the ground, get the supporters um, together, and then start the campaign. France will see that he's serious, and then they will support him, give him the full support that he needs. Um, so, so that's that's the position in June 1745.
7: What traits of Charles's personality do you think allowed him to be in the position that he was? Do you think there were things that made him good at his role?
4: I think I think he, it, it's almost more basic than that. I don't think his life has a lot of meaning. Unless an attempt to restore the Stuarts is either in train or is in action, and I think that's how he feels. That's that. Uh, if you're trying to get into the head of that individual, I think that, that would be a key. That's a key thing to understand about him. I think. Um, you know, he's spent 24 odd years in Rome hunting. Uh, you know kind of just you know waiting for something like this to happen and and I think he so in other words that's that's the basis of his decision making is that this is the point of his life this is his purpose and I think he also with his father believed that there are potentially you know hundreds of thousands of people who think the same way they are waiting for the Stuarts to come back so in that sense, he he feels he, he has a very clear view of his role in the world and what he's here to do, and that is to restore the House of Stuart. So I think that's key to his his personality. Um, and I think he feels that, you know, when he's been, in, as I say, been in Paris for over a year, Louis XV has refused to see him. Um, they're keeping him incognito the entire time and as james francis edward his father back in rome says you know what what is what does this mean this keeping him on the quiet on the cheap obviously at hand so that should they decide to ruffle the feathers of the king in the, in london they just sort of prod you know charles into action and says look we've got the young pretender here you know to in some way sort of disrupt and disturb um, the the government in and the king in uh, in London, so Charles decides that in order to pursue the very purpose of his life, he needs to take the reins himself and and do it himself. So I think he's a very persistent. I mean, can you imagine spending all that time in Paris simply waiting for somebody else to burp into action? Um, when this is your purpose, this is your life, and people want you to do this. This is how he feels. This is what he thinks. This is, you know, his his godly right is to be the heir of uh, of the you know the Prince of Wales of Great Britain and Ireland, and uh, and Louis the Fifteenth, who obviously has other things on his mind, mainly you know that the, the what's good for France, um, you know, has shown himself to be a somewhat sort of you know half-hearted supporter at times. Um, and so he says, right, I'm going to I'm going to grasp this nettle. I'm going for it. Um, I think because he never expected to buy himself with a few men, you know, and a couple of guns and some cannon um, to to su- because, you know, as we know, invading and then pursuing a military campaign, uh, you know, a coup in Britain is, is not a, an easy matter. I think he genuinely believed with enough, with the wind behind him, you know, with in his sails, etc., with enough people to show that there is a genuine support for the Stuarts, um, active support for the Stuarts in Scotland and then Great Britain more broadly, um, that France would stir itself into action and, and throw its full weight behind the campaign. So I, th- I think he was trying to, you know, call Francis Bluff, you know, you want us back on the throne, you get on with it, you do it. So so again, I think it's quite, you can kind of, you if you think of it in that way, I think you can understand what he does and why he does it. Um, so I think, yes, cut a long story short, he's a very persistent, focused individual. But he's also, in order to succeed, you have to be charming, you have to be, you have to have charisma. You have to have a a reason for people believing in you and and loving you, as as he would expect from his um, loyal subjects. Um, And so he must also be, and people do write about it, that he is charming, um, amusing, you know, all the things that a prince of the Ancien regime would be expected to be in regard to his, his sort of his interpersonal skills, as it were, I suspect, uh, and in fact, people do comment on the fact that his education isn't quite what would have been, again, expected of a of a prince of this period. Um, I quote comments from a variety of different people that meet them and and say that both princes, both he and his brother, are charming, you know, elegant individuals, but they they just don't seem to have as much wit um, as you might hope and an awareness of the world, let's say. So I think that would always have Gone against him, um, but I think the basic character traits that he's got is um, is what drives him forward and, and takes him a very long way indeed.
7: Mm. And certainly through to the September of that year, they did seem to have the wind behind them, didn't they?
4: Well, I think they had the element of surprise on their side, isn't it? It's it they, you know, they had it was the hutzpah, wasn't it? It was the, <laughs> you know, turning up, you know, being very persuasive people, you know, with a natural loyalty to the Stuarts, you know, like uh, you know Lockheel and people like that, all you know, despite their better judgment joining. Um, you know, with, with that kind of momentum, they, they got all the way to, to Edinburgh. They obviously got the Battle of Preston Pans in, in the September, which against all the odds and everyone's expectations, they 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 succeed. It's a victory, a Jacobite victory. Um, and all of a sudden it's, it's, there's a powerful thing there. Not only is the momentum behind them, but the PRs behind them too. They are, they've beaten one of the best trained armies in the world. So, um, or at least a contingent of that, that army, but nonetheless, you know, the reputational benefit of this is massive. And if you've got something like that behind you, a major victory, you've occupied the capital of Scotland Okay, you haven't managed to um, take over all the forts, the garrisons and forts and so on, or indeed Edinburgh Castle itself, or Stirling, but nonetheless, you know, that's a, a great first, you know, great start, and that can only be of benefit to the people sitting in England waiting to see what's happening before they join in. Surely all that success in Scotland is going to generate a huge amount of support you know, a whole wave of support behind the advance to London.
7: Is there a point at which we can say that things began to start going wrong, or is it too complex to say that?
4: I, I obviously, I, I can say one thing outside of the book, because the book was written, you know, I, the, fir- the one thing I did not want to do was to start the first chapter by saying, this is doomed, and now I'm going to tell you why. <laughs> Who wants to read a book? of the, the, the doom the romantic doom and gloom of the of the uh jacobite the last jacobite rising no one would want to read that so i i wrote the book as if you have no idea what's going to happen next you know it's a bit like watching macbeth a really good hopefully a really good production of macbeth where you get to that moment you think maybe he won't kill duncan maybe it isn't that downward spiral of you know, doom. Maybe it's not a tragedy. Um, and I was hoping that, that as people are reading it, they think, well, I know what happens, but maybe it doesn't, that somehow you're carried along. So it's kept in the moment, as it were, rather than a retrospective history where you're constantly being reminded of what happened next. You're hopefully being taken along so you're not quite sure whether it whether your memory of what actually happens is is right or not, so so stepping outside the book, which I absolutely intended never to be, you know, the death of the Jacobite cause because nobody would have known that even in 1748, um, well after the Battle of Culloden and, and various other things, I wanted it to be kept alive as it were, as much as people at the time believed it to be or not. But stepping outside of that, I think um, the, the the fault lines. Started appearing almost immediately within the Jacobite command, which was crucial. Um, you know whether these guys got on. Uh, you know the heads, heads of the various um, regiments, whether they be the Highland clans, clan chiefs, or whether they're Irishmen who are have experience of being in a regular army. Um, it, keeping that group together and, and focused and unified and behind the, the campaign or rather from Charles's point of view behind hit what he thought the campaign, what the aim was, um, which obviously is the um, Stuarts being returned to all their territories, you know, the Great Britain and Ireland, and in fact being resident in, ba- based mainly in London but occasionally coming back to Edinburgh and so on. If everybody's behind that, then of course you can move mountains. But if they're not, if the, if the um, fault lines already exist, which they did, um, then it's it's a massive issue and a massive thing for a character, a young character, inexperienced individual like Charles Edward Stewart, to balance to to, to cope with. So yeah, so on, I think from the kind of <laughs> Not that that would necessarily have uh, foretold the failure of the campaign, but it certainly didn't make it any easier to maintain the discipline that they needed, the union, the the, the unity of focus and and, um, aim that was required. There was a disjuncture almost from the onset between various camps, which just got worse and worse and worse as as the campaign went on. So I think you, you could see problems early, but, you know, if the campaign had been successful, you know, and the Stuarts had returned, then we'd look back on that and say, well, despite the fact there were these issues, you know, they still managed to do it. So, so yeah, so I think in retrospect, you can see the fault lines early.
7: For people who may not know, what happened into the opening months of 1746?
4: So what's, so what's happened is that you've got this extraordinary advance, um, the Jacobite army, which by the time it leaves Edinburgh, in the beginning, end of October, beginning of November, is about five and a half thousand, six thousand strong, advance into England. They just keep going. They through the northwest. They go through um, Cumberland as it was then. They advance through. They go through Lancashire, and then they get all the way to Derby, which is famously one hundred and twenty miles from London, um, and then they retreat. So by the time we get to and retreat successfully back into Scotland, because there's another Jacobite army forming in Scotland, a second, a second army, as it were. And the idea is that, um, that they can't advance any further than Derby. They feel they're going to be cut off from this second army back in, in Scotland. And what they need to do is to unite the army. So it's almost double its size. Um, consolidate their, their successes in Scotland and then potentially advance back into England. So that's one potential forward thing. So by the time we get to 1746, early 1746, um, in the January, you, um, you have a sizable Jacobite army. Um, so th- it's not all gloom and doom by any stretch. And it wins yet another victory um, at Falkirk so so that's what's happening in in the january of um uh, 1746 at the turn of 45 46 so in other words this is an army that's not you know on de- in decline it's not a cause that's desperate and on its knees um it you know as a, as i say with this idea of never quite sh- the book never shows you what's happening too far in advance of where you actually are in in the story at that moment, you know, after the Battle of um, Falkirk, that's um, again another experienced um, general, um, Henry Hawley in this in this instance, is is beaten by by the Jacobite army. So this is this is an army with its potentially, with you know, with its tail up. Um, and then, of course, you've got this this the, the move towards you know the, the kind of the, the slight cat and mouse thing that goes on in in Scotland, as as in fact, rather than consolidate their success by attacking. Hawley's army again after the after Falkirk. In fact, um, it's decided to retreat further into the um, into the Highlands um, in order to winter out, as it were, the the the, the months the um, months in front, and then come the spring to to be in full strength um, to then to then um, meet up with the with the British army again. So that's that's the, that's the thinking more or less. I mean, Charles is not happy about not uh, what happens what happens after um, Falkirk that the fact that they don't follow up the the victory at Falkirk with the annihilation of the British Army that's there that they in fact as far as he's concerned retreat um and he's is certainly not happy with that but it's seen as part of a kind of longer game from the Scottish commander mainly Scottish commander's point of view to retreat back into the highlands and to sort of build up the army um, maybe with some training to make sure it's fed and so on and so forth but so there's a kind of logic in, in what they do so that's that's the situation in the first three months of um, 1746.
7: How do you think the specific events that unfolded in April 1746 have made it so legendary so influential to later history?
4: I think you know. I think once you know anything about it, or you read about it, you realise that in fact, Culloden didn't have to happen. <laughs> it didn't have to happen on that day. Um, Charles's one of his main commanders, Lord George Murray, um, argued for the rest of his life that they just didn't need to make that stand at Culloden on the sixteenth of April. Um, you've also got from the legendary point of view, you've got the failed night march, um, whereby. The thousands or so of, of the army that actually happened to be in the vicinity because many of them were off trying to um you know find food and and uh, and so on so there was a, a a group a sizable group of the of the jacobite army was at um around culloden around the the, the culloden house um and the british army had advanced to Nen and was encamped at Nen, um and the Lord George Murray is is always credited with suggesting it, but it seems to have been something that had been kind of worked out. And he, he definitely, um, he felt it was the better, it was the lesser of two evils, was to advance at night the entire army to the encampment at Nairn, the British army encampment at Nairn, and to attack the army in its in the tent in a tent in their beds as it were um, and to get rid of the, the the British Army in that way and if that's you know if they had done it it would have been you know an extraordinary um maneuver which would which would have you know completely ruined the um, British Army's chances of of, of fighting and, and being succeeding against the the Jacobite army so uh, so I think what's so legendary about the um about what happens in April is that there are there are so many potentials, or a potential at least, one potential of great success, which if it had come off, would have completely changed the entire history of Great Britain. Um, but that, and sadly for them, the that particular um, attempt to to sort of annihilate the British army in their beds, in their tents, um, failed because the Jacobite army didn't leave early enough from Culloden. It was a good sort of eight, eight or so miles march in the dark across Foggy, you know lumpy terrain um, and they just didn't get there in time to to make the surprise attack um in the dark in fact the sun was coming up and it was in more or less broad daylight by the time they they were within a couple of miles of the british army camp so i think it's this all feeds into this this what if element of the 45 there's lots of i don't know if it's that rare amongst them, um, you know Pieces of British history, but there are lots of what ifs for some reason within this within the story of the Forty Five. What if they had advanced from Derby? What if the night march has succeeded? You know, it just seems to be that then that kind of builds on that idea of the legend and uh, of the of this particular campaign.
7: Are there any characters in this story who you think haven't uh, otherwise got the recognition they deserve? You,
4: you probably you you've read the book, so you could probably tell. Who I have slight fuzzy feelings about, warm fuzzy feelings <laughs> about. One of them would be. I think he's one of the great heroes whose name is not necessarily well known. Certainly, south of the border is um, Duncan Forbes, the Lord President, um, who is comes across as such a sensible, even-handed. You know, very clued up politically, legally. Um, you know, he's obviously on the Hanoverian side. His his family are Presbyterians. So he has a—he wants to defend his religion, his denomination of Protestantism, particularly against Catholicism and so on, which of course the Stuarts uh, represent as as um, as Catholics. Um, but he's also very, you know, he's very astute. His reading of, um, you know, what is the the uh, crucible of um, Jacobite support, of Stuart support, is the Western Highlands. And as somebody resident whose house, of course, is Culloden, ironically, Culloden House is actually his his house, and the battle nearby um, was named after it. Um, you know, but he's, as somebody who's a, a proud Highlander and kind of lives, he's local, um, he... He understands and appreciates the the, the stance of, uh, of, of people who even are against his own political stance and so on. He has a kind of a, an, a, an understanding, a deep understanding of it, inherent understanding. So I think he, if people had listened to him more, <laughs> um, the 45 might not have happened. And after Culloden and the whole, the terrible devastation that occurs after that his his advice to people like the Duke of Cumberland and also the government back in London is again very even-handed it appreciates that some form of justice is required you know if you raise a rebellion in your country and you fail then there has to be some something has to give something has to happen but he feels that an extension of mercy is also very important and vital and um, unfortunately, he's not really listened to. Um, he's listened to in part, but not, not fully listened to. Um, so I think I, I think I could ha- highlight one individual that really should be better known, not just in Scotland, but I think more broadly in, in Britain, um, is it would be Duncan Forbes.
7: How should we now see this story in light of 21st century political tensions and tensions about identity as well, I guess?
4: I, well, I think, I mean, I hope that it, that people will see that something that's um, often held up as very black and white, um, you know, you've got your heroes, you've got your twiddly-moustache villains, you know, the Duke of Cumberland, for example, you know, Charles is the hero, Cumberland's the villain, um, you know, that there's a obvious sort of, you know, there are virtue on one side and vice on the other, you know, there's self-interest on one side and, and you know, honour on the other. I hope that if, people read this book, is that is to impress upon them that actually the situation is infinitely more complicated as ever um, than, than the perception you might have about it. So it's not Scotland versus England. It's not Catholics versus Protestants. Um, you know, that um, Charles is not a Scottish nationalist um, hero by any stretch of the imagination. The, um, the uh, breaking up of the union, which the Stuarts used as part of their PR campaign to get... Um, those who were anti-union behind them for for a Stuart restoration. I mean, that was something that they used, and and in fact, Charles um, reiterates this in proclamations when he's at Holyrood in the September of 1745, that the union is null and void, um, and that the the three um, um, countries that form the union, um, or rather the two countries, as in Scotland and England, um, it, this is now null and void and they are now separate countries. So so he, you might see him as being a kind of uh, nationalist prototype figure. But it's it's a moot point whether once they'd arrived in London, um, whether Charles would have advocated the breakup of the union um, simply on a, on a basic level because I, in my opinion, and I think others would agree, it would have been, frankly, easier to uh, continue governing um the um the great britain scotland um, wales and um, england via the um the, through the union through a, s- a single parliament in in london in westminster so so i think it's it's a case of it, some of the kind of things that have been attached to certain figures particularly charles and, and the jacobites themselves um, i hope that people will realize it's a lot more complicated than that and um and that, that, as I say, you know, no matter how charming the individual, or how much you you agree with their stance, most of the people involved in this, um, excepting the foot soldiers who've been, a lot of whom have been dragged into this situation because of the um, the um, the right of their their clan chief, um, a lot of the people involved in this are involved partly out of loyalty, but also out of out of self interest. Um, so it's just to realise that, in fact. Life, as ever, is a lot more complicated than you might think.
5: That was Jacqueline Riding. Jacobites, A New History of the 45 Rebellion, is out now in both the UK and the US, published by Bloomsbury.
2: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings
5: And now it's time for the latest history news with our website assistant, Ellie Cawthorn.
0: Alongside surfing, skateboarding and climbing, another more unusual sport is being put forward for inclusion in the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. English Heritage is leading a campaign to get jousting officially recognised as an Olympic sport. One of the world's oldest equestrian sports, Jousting was particularly popular in the 15th and 16th centuries and was a favourite pastime of Henry VIII. The sport sees riders atop horses charging towards each other with lances at speeds of up to 30 miles per hour. English Heritage, who have launched an online petition in support of the campaign, already hosts jousting events across the country. Lucy Hutchins, Head of Projects at English Heritage told The Guardian that the organisation is deadly serious about lobbying the International Olympic Committee to get the sport registered in the 2020 Games. Jousting is an incredible spectator sport, she stated. The skill of the knight and the horses make it a great thing to witness. We absolutely believe it deserves its place at the Olympic table. Sticking with English heritage, this week the organisation unveiled a blue plaque on the childhood home of footballer Bobby Moore. Fifty years after he led England to victory at the 1966 World Cup, Moore has become the first footballer to be memorialised in this manner. He lived at the semi-detached house in Barking, East London, from his birth up until his England debut in 1962, practising his football skills on the surrounding streets. Moore's daughter, Roberta, said her father would be truly humbled and deeply touched by the plaque. In other news, Archaeologists in Mexico have uncovered an underground water tunnel beneath the Mayan Temple of Inscriptions, a discovery which could alter our understandings of the Mayan belief system. Built in the 7th century AD, the temple was a tomb for the ancient leader Pakal. It stands on top of a natural spring, and archaeologists believe that the two-foot-high water tunnel may have been constructed in order to transport Pakal's spirit into the afterlife. Carvings uncovered at the tomb also support this idea. Ornaldo Gonzalez, who led the project, reported that the carvings say a god will guide the dead towards the underworld by submerging them into the water so they will be received there. The discovery suggests that water played a more important role in Mayan beliefs about the afterlife than has previously been recognised.
5: Before our next interview, here's a reminder that tickets are currently on sale for this year's History Weekend events. They're taking place in Winchester from the 7th to 9th of October, and then York from the 18th to 20th of November. And both feature great lineups of historians, including the likes of Simon Sebag Montefiore, Dan Snow, Susanna Lipscomb, Anthony Beaver, and many others. Some of the talks are now beginning to sell out. So, if you are planning to attend, then do book your tickets soon to avoid disappointment. You can find out more information and purchase tickets at historyweekend.com. Our second interview this week is with Michael Scott, a historian and broadcaster based at the University of Warwick. Michael's latest book, Ancient Worlds, offers a global perspective to our distant past, seeking to find connections between civilizations. That are often viewed quite separately. I caught up with Michael a few days ago to find out more. Why do you feel that it's important to write about transnational history in the way that you've done here?
6: The EU referendum vote is on still on all of our minds, and it was interesting. I thought that the Guardian. Uh, around the 29th of June, claimed that what the, the British vote represented was a rejection of globalisation. And I think that's fundamentally wrong. Uh, there is no way in our 21st century globalised world that we can sort of check out or or decide to remove ourselves from the globalised world in which we find ourselves. And as a result, I think we need to take a, a, a new tack. I think we've seen globalisation too much as the enemy. And that's where writing ancient worlds comes in. What I wanted to make clear, as other books like Peter Frankopan's Silk Roads have done so brilliantly, is how much we owe to interaction with one another going back an incredibly long period of time. And whereas the Silk Roads tells the story, Peter Frankopan's Silk Roads tells the story of, of when the world is in permanent connectivity from the Mediterranean to China, Ancient Worlds, if you like, is the precursor to that story. It's the story of how we first came into contact across this vast geographical landmass uh, from the Mediterranean to China. And I don't think uh, there is a story more worth telling uh, right now than one uh, which looks back at the the first moments of our interaction across such a global scale.
5: When we talk about ancient worlds, how far do these worlds stretch? I mean, are we including things like Africa, say, Northern Europe, maybe even Britain, where we are now?
6: Yes, yeah, so what we've done in this book is is looking from the Mediterranean, and, and that includes Britain as it's part of the Roman Empire, um, all the way through to China. We're looking at North Africa. Um, what we don't do in this book is, is take a, a pan-global uh, stage, if you like, and including um, uh, Central and Southern Africa and the Americas. And one of the reasons for that is that the way in which the past has been written about in these different cultures, the way in which the archaeological research has been done, has left very different levels of texture and depth um, in these these ancient times that we can get at these different civilizations with and we are very fortunate in the area from the Mediterranean to China to have a a pretty good texture and depth which just can't be replicated if you go to Central or Southern Africa or to the Americas and as a result the the way that I chose to write this book which is to pick three very specific moments, we're thinking end of the 6th century BCE in part one, we're looking at the end of the third century BCE in part two and the fourth century AD in part three. Um, To be able to talk about those kind of specific moments, what I had to do was to keep the book within the realms of the Mediterranean to China and talk about that story of of gathering into connectivity. But you never know, maybe maybe volume two might take us to the Americas and, and the rest of the world.
5: What would you say are the challenges of writing this kind of history? How difficult is it to work across so many different languages and different cultures?
6: Oh, it's absolutely a challenge. And I would never suggest that global history is the only way we should be doing history. But what I would say is that it should definitely be a more prominent part of the armoury of the ways in which we approach the past. And I think the advantages that it gives you are threefold. The first is that it, it, it puts the emphasis on context, the wider global context in which each of these civilizations and cultures was interacting and functioning, and the second is that it, it prioritizes and gets you to think about how much these cultures owe to interaction with one another, and the third is that it simply gets you outside of the world in, with which you are increasingly familiar, and it get it's a way out of parochialism, to borrow a phrase from Sir Geoffrey Lloyd, who's a specialist in in Greco-Chinese kind of comparative work, uh, and I think that's incredibly important. We need to be reminded on a regular basis about what is familiar and what is deceptibly familiar in the worlds that we study. So I think there are huge advantages. The challenges are, are, are obvious. You are having to, to throw yourself into worlds uh, across a vast time span that have very, very different cultures and ways of thinking and, of course, languages uh, and different types of evidence that you can access. But what I've been incredibly heartened by on the journey of writing this book is not only kind of quite how possible that is to do, but actually quite how welcoming each sort of individual network of scholars have been as I've discussed my research and my ideas with them and we've talked about and how much they've welcomed that perspective uh, that comes with with the global approach.
5: We know now the world is incredibly well connected in many ways. How connected were these various ancient world civilizations and would it have extended beyond the spiritual and temporal leaders to the wider public?
6: I think so. I mean, very much so. A huge amount of the connectivity that we see in the ancient world from the Mediterranean into China was actually forged by by traders, by those who are out there plying their wares and travelling across vast distances or passing their goods on to the next relay of travellers who are taking it the next set of distances. Or indeed, as we see in part three of this book, when we're looking at religion, it is very much the, the missionaries, the practitioners of the religion who are by nature, very humble people, or or indeed people from very noble birth who have given up their exalted positions and taken to the road as missionaries, particularly Buddhist missionaries heading east towards China. This was a connectivity that was fueled, if you like. By a very wide range of society. And the impacts of that connectivity, I think, would have been felt by a wide range of society as well. If we think about the Roman Empire for a moment, the number of goods pouring into the Roman Empire from outside the Roman world was huge, the most famous of which, of course, is silk. It was an expensive good, so it was something that only those with money were buying, but everyone knew about and was talking about. And so I don't think we can really underestimate. The degree to which the connections had an impact on the individual societies, and indeed the the role that a very wide range of the population played in fueling those connections.
5: I'm sure it obviously varied across different civilizations. But how did people in the ancient world view people from other ancient cultures? Was it, were they is it welcoming? Did they feel superior to them, or scared of them, or anything?
6: I think that's a, a fascinating question, and we're so used when working in the Mediterranean world to think about the sort of civilized versus barbarian dichotomy. The foreigners over there to the east are, are the barbarians, going all the way back to Herodotus, obviously, in the, the Persian invasions of Greece. But when you look at some of the first reports of, of contact from the west further east and from the east to the west, actually the note you get is is, is one of respect. So, from the west going east, at the end of the fourth century BCE, we have the figure of Megasthenes, who is the first official ambassador to be sent by the Seleucid rulers to the court of the Indian king Chandragupta Maurya at Pataliputra, And he writes his account of India as he finds it, his Indica, which is then recounted for us in part by writers such as Diodorus Siculus and others. And what's striking about his record of India is, on the one hand, you know, fanciful about ants the size of men and men who have their feet on backwards and things like that. But on the other hand, an incredible respect and admiration for Indian culture. He marvels, for example, at the fact that they seem to exist perfectly happily without slavery and that their society functions without much crime. Um, and on the other hand, if you look at some of the sources from the East, from the world of the Chinese looking West, particularly in document the Hu Han Shu, the, the, the book of the later Han dynasty, in which there's a section on, uh, a chapter on the Western regions talking about the first people to to make their way West. And uh, the quote there is fascinating. It says, the people of this country of the West are, are all tall and honest. And then it goes on to say, in, in fact, in that, they're quite like us. Um, these are decent people. Uh, and this is why that, that we have given the name to this far Western realm uh, uh, da Qin, the greater Qin, which was a, a mark of huge respect coming from the, the Chinese world. So in that sense, it, it it's quite a wonderful note, I think, that, that the first kind of records and mullings over of what the East is like from the Western perspective and what the West is like from the Eastern perspective is actually, in both cases, full of admiration and respect, um, rather than the more typical ones that we've we've seen over the centuries, and which sadly are still present today, of of disrespect and of of fear.
5: And as you mentioned earlier, you've picked out three key dates to focus on in your book. And the first one is in the late sixth century BC, where you've got great developments in democracy, religion, philosophy. How far do you think that these were actually connected to each other, or were they coincidental?
6: Well, I mean, the, the, the time around the 6th century BCE has been called an Axial Age, going all the way back to, to the work of Carl Jaspers following the Second World War, because you have this plethora of great thinkers and ideas that are born both political and religious and philosophical, as you said, in this era. Um, and so it is very tempting to see this as a sort of global turning point in human history. But what I'm specifically interested in, in this part, the first part of this book, is is the political change. Uh, And there you have an example uh, that in 508 BCE, Athens is in the grip of revolution that will lead to the invention of democracy. Rome is in the grip of revolution leading to the invention of its Republican government. And at the very same time on the other side of the world, you have Confucius thinking and developing his philosophy of just rule. Now, Confucius is acting totally independently from what's going on in the Mediterranean, although Greece and Rome actually interacting quite heavily. And yet what it's saying, I think, is that societies are developed to a point of sophistication and complexity where they are being forced across that wide geographical span to face up to key questions about how best to govern themselves, how best um, to rule. And now they're coming up with very different answers because of their their cultural context. But what's interesting, I think, is that uh, they're all being forced to ask that question. And what other historians like Ian Morris in his book, Why the West Rules for Now points out, is that the end of the 6th century BC is a fascinating moment in the human story because unlike in the past where societies had got to a certain level of complexity, but then collapsed under that complexity, Actually, this is the first time that they don't, that societies across the globe manage to develop solutions to be able to allow them to to survive and indeed grow from this point forward.
5: Do we have any, any notion why that happened? What was different about this period?
6: I think, to a certain extent, it's the it's the evolution of radical ideas. Um, the radical ideas that are suited to the particular circumstances of each particular world. Uh, what's striking is, for example, that uh, in the Greek story, the invention and then a growth of democracy, for example, is that you have an enormous number of sea battles. Now, sea battles are very important because everyone is rowing the ships. They are battles which reinforce the right of everyone across a society to uh, have a role and a say in what that society does. If you would look to China, on the other hand, or indeed to Rome, you see an equal amount of war, but actually much more focused on land. And in land battles, you have a a much more uh, hierarchical system in which those that can afford the better weaponry or the horses tend to be more important to the battle. And so, battles and war in, in those worlds tend to reinforce traditional hierarchies. So, I think it's the evolution of radical and different ideas that are then supported by the particular cultural and historical and geographical circumstances of each world.
5: second date you talk about is 218 BC. What do you feel makes this period so important?
6: I mean, I think 218 BC, which is made famous for us in the West with Hannibal sort of uh, heading off across the Alps to attack Rome with his elephants, is the starting point for an incredibly important sort of 80-year period, if if you like, a single lifetime. Because as Hannibal kicks off to uh, to challenge Rome for supremacy of the Mediterranean, in the East, in China, by this stage, you have just had the emergence of the first great unified Chinese empire, the Qin Empire. These two monoliths the West and the East, will come to govern half of the world's population and be stable parts of the geopolitical landscape for hundreds of years to come. And at the same time, over that that next 80 years, you get the meeting in the middle in Central Asia. And I think this is a fascinating moment that The creation of the uh, unified Chinese empire in the East sets off a migratory wave of nomadic tribes heading West that are disturbed by the creation of China. On the other hand, uh, with the uh, war going on in the Mediterranean and with the Seleucid Empire running from the Eastern Mediterranean through to Central Asia, you've got continual challenges to to rulership and the desperate attempts to reinforce empires and borders. And then in about the 140s BC, so after about 80 years, you get the clash of those migratory nomadic tribes, uh, smashing into the greco roman world in Central Asia, the very uh, Eastern edge of the Seleucid Empire. And that is the first moment that is recorded in both Western histories and Eastern histories. It is, if you like, the meeting of the historical record across uh, this, this global scale. And it is the very beginnings of the permanent routes of connection uh, from west to east that will become known famously as the Silk Roads.
5: And a lot of these cases, we're talking about war and conquest. And How much were those factors important in bringing the world together alongside things like trade and religion?
6: Absolutely I mean I think war is is a fundamental here, and particularly expansion from the East, not just the creation of the unified Qin Empire, but then when the Han dynasty takes over, uh, you see a, a very strong attempt by the Han emperors to to expand uh, westwards of their sense of control you know to in a way uh, protect and and nurture these uh, these growing trade routes. but I think one of the other things that we we can't underestimate is the way that once these networks of connection start, they become conduits, not just for the objects and people that are traveling, but also for ideas and ideas of all kinds and sorts. And that's why the part three of my book is is, is fundamentally about religion and the spread of religious ideas across this now uh, connected world. You have Christianity, of course, in the fourth century AD spreading and and becoming the, the official religion of the Roman Empire, but also spreading into places like Armenia, Ethiopia, further east. Uh, You have Buddhism spreading out of India up into Central Asia, but then fundamentally into China during this period. So I think it's important to realise that trade and war and power obviously are are key starters in this mix. Uh, But once the networks are there, ideas of all sorts can move across them.
5: So you've picked out three very important years to frame this book around, but would it be fair to say that In almost any year, you could find some interesting examples of interaction at this point.
6: I'm sure in any year there would be particular examples of interaction, or at least growing and gathering interaction. What I think makes these three moments particularly interesting is that they are a similar kind of development that is happening at the same time across such a vast geopolitical and geographical span. So it's politics for the Mediterranean to China in the 6th century, it's war in the end of the 3rd and early 2nd century, and religion in the 4th century AD. And for me, they are special and fascinating windows into the gathering connectivity of the ancient worlds that make up this landmass from from Mediterranean to China, which lay the groundwork for the centuries of connectivity along the Silk Roads and other trading routes um, that will follow.
5: To what extent do these connections that have been formed then continue into what I guess we'd call the medieval period?
6: Yes, I mean, absolutely. There are uh, rises and falls. I mean, one of the most interesting uh, connections, I think, is that those nomadic tribes that are fighting against the unified Chinese empire at the end of the third and beginning of the second century BCE that will continue to plague the Chinese empire for some time, as they start to migrate westwards, it, it's thought that the uh, descendants of them are the Huns that will come to plague the Roman empire in the fourth fifth centuries AD. So it, in that sense, There are these these wonderful global connections that continue to roll for centuries to come and and will continue well into the medieval period, obviously with uh, lesser and and higher moments of of activity and connectivity. And indeed, the Silk Roads will maintain their vivacity until you get to the era of Columbus uh, discovering America and you get to the era of when alternative routes by, by boat are possible. And it's only after that that moment in the sort of 15th century was that you start to see the decline of the Silk Roads um, as the primary means of communication and connectivity across this vast geographical span.
5: Now, obviously, you're you're really keen to promote global history through this book. But what else do you think needs to be done by the history profession more generally to give the public a better idea of our global past?
6: Personally, I think that uh, we need to be thinking about interconnectivity between cultures right from the get-go, the way we teach history uh, at school all the way through to university and, and beyond. I mean, I'm very heartened, for instance, by um, the OECD runs a program called PISA, the Program for International Student Assessment, and it's their job to look across 80 countries and see whether 15-year-olds are being prepared through their the ways that they're being assessed for the challenges that they will face in the world today. and in 2018, which is the next PISA assessment year, they will, for the first time, be adding global competency as one of the key challenges that 15-year-olds need to be prepared for by what they are learning in schools. And I think global competency is is defined as as their ability to act as global citizens, their ability to engage with others, their ability to understand and think about cultures that are different from their own, and their ability to, to interact in a dignified and open way with people from across the world. And I think that's an incredibly positive and important effort to get behind. And I think historians can play an incredibly important role in that.
5: That was Michael Scott. Ancient Worlds, An Epic History of East and West is out now in the UK, published by Hutchinson. And in the US, it's available for the Kindle. And you can also read an article by Michael about global connections in our August issue, which is currently on sale. Also inside this month's magazine, there are articles on Eleanor of Aquitaine, the Chinese Cultural Revolution, a 17th century plot to kill Charles II, and the historical context of Britain's vote to leave the EU. You can get hold of our August issue now in all good news agents in the UK, and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. And if you'd like to take out a subscription, we currently have a great deal available for new UK subscribers. You can get your first five issues for just £1 each. To take advantage of this deal, visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash history magazine and quote the code HTP206. One of the regular sections in the magazine, and on the podcast, is our First World War, which is following that conflict from a distance of 100 years, through the voices of those who participated in it. We've now reached July 1916, and here, speaking to the Imperial War Museum, is George Ashurst, reflecting on his experiences at the Battle of the Somme.
8: Over the top, you know, I'm on top then. It's partly blown down, you know. And I'm just stepping on top, and there's a corporal lying there. Oh, an Irish shoulder. All here was blown away, you know. And he looks up at me as I passed him. God, on, He says, get the bastards. I remember that quite well. I just, well, I don't stop, you know, I'm not to stop. I just said, okay, and hugged it off as fast as I could. Run, you see. I said, I did. Took no more notice of him. I didn't I just
3: Were you under a lot of fire?
8: Yeah. There seemed to be bullets everywhere. I was zigzagging. I seemed to be dodging in between them. Must have been anyway to get there. And I dove in the sun's road when I got there.
3: Were you able? How fast were you able to run with your equipment? Was your equipment holding you back at all?
8: It wasn't that. I was running fast. I was running fast, right enough.
3: Could you see what was happening, that there were casualties or...?
8: Oh, yes. And there was uh, smoke, you know, gun smoke knocking about. You could hear him when a bullet hit somebody against you, you know. You could hear it hit him. You'd hear him groan and go down.
3: Was it mainly machine gun or rifle or artillery? Well, I should say it
8: was mainly machine gun that cut us up. We've seen guns that cut us up, yes, but far more so than, than shells, although I think this fella, this corporal I saw on top, I think he'd been hit with what they call a whiz-bang. There was a terrible shell, they know, it come like lightning, to our shell, our trenches, and it was there.
3: Were you scared as you went over the top there? I mean, what, what were, sort of things were going on in your head, if you can remember?
8: Just, uh, I've got to get forward to you on something road. That's all. I was dodging, you know. And hold it holding me head down like this. So I thought it would you in tin And uh, I kept going. I don't know how I run there. but it run there anyway.
3: About how far was it?
8: About 150 yards,
3: I should think.
8: Yes. So that sunken about 150 yards. Perhaps a so bit it'd be more. about
3: another 75 to the German trench if it was.
8: Yes. Yes. And you could, when you got to the sunken road, you couldn't see its trenches, you know. You were down below. When you left the sunken road at the east side, the ground went up like that. You see, because when Colonel Maniac said, Every fit man over the top again, you know. Come with me, over the top, every fit man. Well now, I don't know, I run up but right enough, I run up the ground. Whether a lot more did, I don't know, or whether they disobeyed him, you know. But he went over. Whether a lot didn't, because when I dashed back into that sunken road, After I'd made my mind up, I was no use where I was, on top of there in a hole. I found there were men, in good order.
5: That was George Ashurst. You can read more from our First World War each month in BBC History magazine. And that is pretty much it for this episode, but please do listen in next week when we'll be talking about the Cold War and Greek philosophy.
0: Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.